Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. You can be seated if you're in the room, church. I am so excited to be joining together today to be bringing to you the message that I feel like God spoke to me over this past week just about what he wants to speak to our church and reveal another part of who he is to us and remind us of his goodness and of his faithfulness. And I want to start this morning in some ways where we ended last week. As I began to pray about this weekend, I kept rethinking about the scripture we ended on last week, which is in the book of John chapter 3 and 17. It's the verse that comes after probably one of the most famous verses of scripture in the whole Bible, John 3, 16, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. I'm really grateful that I remembered the whole thing today because if you want to know what the nightmares of preachers look like, I have real life lived it, which is one time I was up here and I forgot the second half of John 3.16 while I was preaching to you all. It was one of the most embarrassing moments of my entire life, but I'm thankful for you all because I just acted like I was passing it over to you and I was like, God so loved the world that, that what? And you guys finished it for me and I was like, woo, thank you, Jesus. You ever have that where your brain just like stops on you and you're like, I know this. It's terrible. It's like number one qualifier for being a preacher. No John 3.16 in its entirety. I've been working on it for years now and I nailed it today. All right, but John 3.17 then says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God, we thank you that you came to save us. Thank you for what you've spoken to me this week. And I ask you for it to come out clearly today, for it to produce fruit in our lives, God, and to bless us in the days to come. In your name, amen. I don't know if you've ever had this scenario in your life, but have you ever gone like to tell on someone or really to tattle. We don't call it tattling when we're adults, but really to tattle on someone else and have that situation backfire on you. Like you go to tell on somebody and then it comes back like, well, why do you, why do you know this information? And you're like, wait, no, I, this is not what we came here to talk about. I was trying to discuss another situation entirely. It happens to my boys all the time because they love to tattle on each other. And they'll come to me and they'll be like, mom, so-and-so is in the neighbor's yard where he's not supposed to be. And then I'm like, well, how do you know that he was in the neighbor's yard? Where were you at that you have all of this information as well? They come to you and they're like, you know, oh, he took my thing from me. And you're like, oh, interesting. What were you doing that made him take that toy from why why did he decide to swing at you what were you doing before he swung at you 
That's it. Come on. Uh, anyone who has parents of small children knows you're often like, wait, wait, wait. There seems like there might be some more to this story than just the details that are being let out right now. I don't know if you've ever lived through that scenario where you're like, no, no, I'm just trying to talk about this part of the story over here. And all of a sudden people are like, that's so interesting. What were you doing before that happened? How did you come to be an owner of this particular information right here? The story kind of like backfires on you and you're like, I wish that I would have just stayed out of this. I should have never come with this information right now. I want to look at a story that I think backfired on the initiators of that story. It's in the book of John chapter 8 today. And I think that we'll see by the end of it that those who came to Jesus came with one purpose in mind, but found out that their story was about to backfire on them, that it didn't go exactly as they intended it to. I'm going to look in the book of John, starting in chapter 8. Before we do that, though, I wanted to uh, draw your attention to maybe something that you see in John chapter 8, which is that your Bible probably has some parentheses around this particular story or maybe an asterisk at the end of it. And then in the footnotes of your Bible, it will say something like, this text not included in the earliest manuscripts or something along that kind. It means that this particular story in the earliest copies that we have of the book of John does not show up right here. It's not there. It seems like it was added on later. And there are lots of scholars who have lots of thoughts and things to say about why that is and how it came to be here. There are those who who would argue that no, it really was originally there and then it was removed because people didn't like the content of it and then it was put back because they thought it was really important. There are those who would say it was written by John but included in something else, but they found it so valuable that they kind of added it back in here, almost like a post-it note in the middle of the story. And there are even those who would say it was perhaps written by Luke because certain language choices sound a little bit more like Luke's. The focus of it seems a little bit more like the focus of what Luke writes about. In his gospel, continually talking about Jesus being connected with those who are outcast and those who are downtrodden and particularly Jesus' role in elevating women, that all of these are themes that Luke focuses on. So there are scholars that say maybe it was written by Luke and for some reason jammed into the book of John. All of these things are thoughts that scholars have around what is going on. Why is it that we don't see this for a period of time in some of the manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John? And then all of the sudden it starts coming back in. But what they all seem to agree on is that it is a valid story and that it was worthwhile in preserving that the reason that we have a lot of questions around how it came to be, but they all confidently assert that the story itself happened. In fact, you can find third-party extra-biblical historical documents that recount a similar story of Jesus being confronted with a woman and sending her off, and they all seem to agree that the reason that we still have it is because early church leaders believed in its validity and believed that it was a story that told us something important about who Jesus was and that it's important for us to preserve the validity of that story and tell it for generations to come so that we can continue learning about who he is. 
Why take time to draw your attention to this footnote only to tell you it's worthwhile and we're going to talk about it again today. The reason being is it is precisely the type of thing that what I call gotcha theologians like to grab and throw to you in a three-minute video and say, ooh, I bet you didn't know that, gotcha, and then say, now you should question the entirety of the gospel. In fact, you should question your entirety. They'll say things like, let me tell you a quick fact that your pastor doesn't want you to know about the gospel of John. Did you know this book wasn't in there? And I'm like, it's written right there. Yes, we knew it was in there. And just by chance, so you can never be gotten by one of these gotcha theologians on your reels, I want you to know that I know that it was not there in the earliest manuscripts. And I think it's important that you know that it was not there in the earliest manuscripts that we have. And there are questions around it, and there is conversation around it. But the point is not, can we track it all the way back? The point is, is it valid, and is it worth preserving? And to me, it points points to the fact even more so that the church found it to be a valid story and a worthwhile story in preserving. That we don't have to be uncertain and we don't have to be nervous and we don't have to live in fear about the Bible and the scripture and the stories that we read. That we can live in confidence that God was working through people across centuries to, to create a story that unifiedly tells us the strength and the beauty and the glory of who he is and reveals to us more and more about what his relationship with us looks like. All right? With all of that in mind, that little aside, which Phil will tell me later, all right, but you took too much time on it. We are going to read the Gospel of John starting in chapter 8 and verse 2. To many of you, it will be a familiar story. It is a shocking story if you have never heard it before. Starting in verse 8, it says, And early in the morning, Jesus is always up early in the morning, much to my chagrin, he came again to the temple. And all of the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote, and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and from now on, sin no more. 
It is a moment in the life of Jesus that would be shocking to those who are around him. It is a moment that would be shocking for people to read in times later on. And more than anything, it is a critical moment where there is a crux of decisions that is being laid before Jesus. These scribes and Pharisees have found a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. And no doubt we have a lot of questions about how this came to be. How did they come to catch her in the very act of adultery? And why is it that the woman is present, but there seems to be no secondary party present in this situation? Where are the others who were involved in this? But regardless of the information that we don't know, it says that they find this woman and they take her to Jesus, not just to Jesus, but they take her to Jesus in the middle of the temple, which means that there were others there because we know that Jesus is in the temple teaching other people. And they drag this poor woman into the midst of the temple and stand her up in front of everyone else in the middle of the temple and announce to the whole room and to the whole party that they have just caught her in a painful, broken, sinful moment in her life. Life. And it is the very picture of what the religious spirit tries to do to each and every one of us. That there is nothing in what they do that has a sense of covering her. That there is nothing in what they're doing that has a sense of restoring her. Like Paul would later tell us, those of you who are mature should seek to restore one another. But there is no sense that they have a, a desire to cover her or to restore her. Their entire point, their entire intention is to expose her, is to humiliate her, is to shame her. And so they drag her into the midst of the temple where Jesus is seated teaching the other people. And in front of the entire crowd and whoever else can hear it, they drag her and say, look, Jesus, we found this woman in an embarrassing moment in her life. And we came to announce to everyone that we have found her in an embarrassing moment of her life and we want to know what are you going to do about it Jesus do you say that we should follow the law of Moses or do you say what do you have to say about this moment Jesus and it says that they did it because they wanted to catch Jesus they don't even care about her they don't even really care about justice being done they care about catching Jesus. She is nothing more than live bait in the game that they are playing right here in the midst of the temple, trying to find out if they can catch Jesus in this crux of an ethical dilemma, in this question. They are playing the kinds of games you play in ethics class. Who gets thrown off the raft first in the middle of the situation, except they're not playing theoretical games. They are playing games with her life and with her reputation and with her situation at hand and they bring her out like a pawn in the midst. I don't know if you have ever been used as a pawn in someone else's game, in a pawn in someone else's chance to get ahead in life. I don't know if you've ever been used as live bait in the way that someone else is trying to catch the next promotion or catch the next 
next thing that they can get them, their name known for. If there's ever been a situation in your life where you feel like, I feel like I'm caught in the midst of this, but I don't know that it actually has anything to do with me. I feel like I'm being used as a ping pong back and forth in this game and this situation that we're playing right now, but I don't know that it ever has anything to do with me. Perhaps when you were a child, your parents went through a messy divorce and you found yourself. I had a different example in my notes, but that right there, perhaps you found yourself bruised and battered and broken because you found yourself used as a pawn in someone else's game that they were playing, trying to make a point about who has the most power or who's been the most victimized or who ought to have what, and you were stuck in the middle of it, being tossed back and forth, thrown between two bedrooms and thrown between two houses and played back and forth about who's paying more for your life and who Who's paying less for your life and who's working harder at it and who's been showing up more tallying hours and you're left there with the broken battered bruised pieces of it just standing in the midst of everybody saying I don't know what's going on right now but this is my real life going on this is my real situation going on this is really how my future is coming out this is really what my tomorrow looks like this is my real me standing right here and here is this woman right in the midst of a situation that has everything to do with her and nothing to do with her all at the same time and she's just standing there in the midst while they play gotcha with Jesus wondering what he's gonna do about this law about this mosaic law that's been brought down and we know that they were just trying to play gotcha with him because they have put him in an impossible question and they have asked him what will you do because the law of Moses says that we should stone this woman? But in first century Palestine, it was incredibly uncommon for stonings to actually be carried out. It was incredibly uncommon, especially in the city environment, that they would actually be carrying out these types of rules. And in fact, they put Jesus in a power play position because he's, he would be jeopardized if he affirmed that he thinks that they should go through with the Mosaic law and stone this woman because things of capital punishment were meant to be rolled out by the Roman government. And so now he's in a position of, is he going to affirm the Mosaic law? Is he going to aid this woman or is he going to be in a position where the Roman government can now come down on him and they don't care about any of it. All they want to know is can they catch Jesus? Because they are still confused about who Jesus is. They are still not clear about the fact that he is the light of the world. That he came into the world not to condemn it but to save it. They are still under the impression that when you bring unclean, damaged, broken people to Jesus, that it may have the potential to make him unclean, damaged, and broken. They are still under the impression that Jesus is concerned about his reputation and what happens when unsavory people come close to him in the way that they are so concerned about their reputation and what happens when unsavory people come close to them. They are still confused about the fact that it is not 
a, uh, that it does not hinder who Jesus is for him to be around the unclean. He cannot be made unclean. He cannot be made sinful by being around sinful people. He is the very essence of God himself. He is all righteousness and he is all holiness and he is all purity and he is the very embodiment of what it means to be God walking around in a fleshly nature. There is no way that drawing someone unclean to him can make, he is the sanitizing agent for your soul. And anytime something unclean contacts a sanitizing agent, the unclean thing is made clean by the sanitizing agent. The sanitizing agent isn't made unclean by the unclean thing because it is more powerful. And this is who Jesus is. The one who cannot be made unclean by all of your shortcomings and all of your flaws and all of your brokenness and all of the parts of your life that you wish that no one else had seen. Can you imagine the shame that this woman is now feeling? Can you imagine the embarrassment of our life that the place of brokenness that she has that the, the place of hurt and the place of questioning and whatever, all of the things that brought her to this moment of sleeping with someone that was not her husband might be, not only has she lived through that turmoil and through that inner pain of the soul, because sin often feels good for a moment, but it leaves us with questioning and it leaves us with pain in our soul and it leaves us with marring on the inside of us. Not only does she carry the weight of the sin that she has been participating in, now she has been drugged into the middle of the city center and it has been exposed for everyone and everyone is looking. I can just imagine her standing there in the middle of the temple with the crowd around who has now become an audience in the play of her real life and the Pharisees making their accusations and Jesus standing in front of her and she has no idea if she will live to see tomorrow. Her life is in the hands of the one she stands in front of. Her life is in the hands of the Jesus that she now stands in front of but does not yet know. She finds herself in this moment wondering what this is going to look like standing I imagine with head low and eyes clenched in some ways just waiting for the first rock to be thrown and no at least having the clarity of outcome but she stands instead suspended in the unknown waiting and wondering no doubt hoping he will speak and just say something but Jesus doesn't say anything because he stoops down he stoops down to the ground. It's interesting because Jesus' posture in this moment moves through different positions. He is the one who is seated teaching, and then they bring to him this woman who is broken and bruised and who they are hoping to catch in the midst of, the, of her crime so that they can catch Jesus in this situation. But Jesus does what he always does when he is confronted with our sinfulness, and that is that he stoops down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he gets lower. 
That's what he did when it says, and God sent his only son. He sent him from an elevated place in heaven to a lower place on earth so that he could stoop down to be like you and I, so that he could stoop down to get close to where we are, so that he could stoop lower than the place that he once was and come close to what it means to being human, to come close to where you are so he can get to who you are. They thought that bringing her to him would make him unclean but Jesus says you have no idea who I am I am the one who though I was seated in heavenly places am now going to stoop down and begin writing in the dirt I am going to get even more unclean than you imagine because I'm not afraid of the dirt of your life and I'm not afraid of the dirt of the here and now and I'm not afraid of what this dirty moment might do because I can see what's on the other side of it Jesus Jesus is the one who always stoops down when he is trying to get to you in your sin, when he is trying to recover you from your sin. It is the exact same thing that he would do just weeks later because he stoops down to write in the dirt on behalf of this woman, but then he stands up to address the Pharisees. It says he stands up in authority and in clarity to speak to them and to talk to those who would accuse her, to come against those who would be the ones to try and keep her in bondage and would try to put death on top of her. It is the picture of what he will get ready to do after the crucifixion because it says that he stooped down into the depths of hell to conquer sin and the grave. He stoops down when he's dealing with your sinful nature, but then it said he would ascend into heavenly places where he is now seated in all authority. He stands up to stand in the place of authority and to speak against every accuser of your life. He is now the one who stands in all authority authority in heaven to accuse anyone who tries to make accusations against you. He is the one who stands up on your behalf. He stands up and says, I already dealt with that. He stands up and says, I've already, I don't know if you remember, I took that sin with me on the cross. I don't know if you remember, but I am now the one who is in heavenly places. He stoops down to get to you and he stands up to deal with your accusers and he stands up and he looks at them. And he simply says, those of you who have no sin can throw the first stone. And then he goes back to what he's writing on the ground. What he's writing on the ground seems in some ways to be the most important, the most critical part of this story. What is he writing on the ground in answer to these Pharisees? Yet it's the part of the story that we have no information about whatsoever. And once again, in the way that we do, we have made all kinds of guesses. Perhaps it's a scripture in Jeremiah, or perhaps it's the name of each one of the Pharisees that stands in front of him. Maybe it's a list of all of their sins that they've ever committed. There are all kinds of theories about what Jesus bends down to write in the sand. The truth of it is we have no idea. But what we do know is when he stands up and he says to them, those of you who are without sin could be the one to cast the first stone that he is reminding them of the letter of the law he's saying to them you want to play this by the law then let's play this by the law because the law told them in Deuteronomy that the one who cast the first 
stone. The initiator of throwing the stones in any stoning had to be an eyewitness as well as someone who was not guilty of that sin themselves. And he says to them, fine then, you want to play like that? He's not just saying to them, those of you who have absolutely no sin in your life. He's saying, I want one of you who saw this happen and can also in your own heart confess to the fact that this is a sin that you have never in any way been part of in your own life and something amazing happens. He says that. He goes back to doing what he's doing. And one by one, they walk away. One by one, they leave. It says from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they walk away. First, the older of the Pharisees begin to walk away. And then the younger of the Pharisees begin to walk away. And to me, what it reminds us of is that it ought to be that the longer that we live and the more life we've experienced, the softer we are towards people who find themselves in trouble. It ought to be that the more life that I've lived, when I see you hurting and when I see you broken and when I see you fallen, I remember my own times of hurting and I remember my own times of shortcoming and I remember my own times of brokenness and that my heart moves towards you instead of away from you. That why is it that sometimes we allow ourselves the more life we experience to become hardened in our heart and to become bitter in our heart? and to become shielded in our heart against other people. And when we see them falling, somehow we use our life experience as accusation against them rather than looking with introspection, which is what Jesus causes them to do. He says, I need you to look inside yourself for a minute and tell me, are there any one of you who could say among you that you have never fallen short of the goodness and the plan that God has in your life? Are there anyone among you that when you see someone else stumbling cannot say that at some point in your life you have also found yourself in that same type of situation you have also found yourself broken you have also found yourself hurting you have also found yourself abused you have also found yourself embarrassed in front of everyone in your name wondering if it's ever going to recover and how come none of them went and found her and said baby you're better than this right here come here let me cover you and let me take you home and let me talk to you about how I came out on the other side of it how come none of them came around her and said let me tell you about the time when I thought I was absolutely at the end of myself let me tell you about the time I wasn't sure if my name could recover but I just kept walking and I just kept living and I just kept praying and I just kept showing up and he brought me out on the other side of it why is it that sometimes we live so long and we allow our experience to become our accusation rather than allowing our experience to become the healing balm and the hope in someone else's life. He says, the oldest of you, if any of you has no sin, and they knew immediately the first among them to drop their stones were those who knew. If you're going to purview my 47 years, there's going to be some things in there that I'm hoping nobody brings up right here in front of everybody else. So before we start going down that list, I better just walk away. And they begin walking away, one by one. And there they are left, Jesus still writing in the sand, writing out names. And the woman still standing there, wondering what's going to happen, wondering how she came to this, 
wondering how she was brought to this moment, wondering what her life is going to turn into. And Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? And in John 8 and 11, she answers him and she says, no one, no one is here, Lord. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go from here and sin no more. He says to her, I don't condemn you either. If there is no one left to condemn you, then I have not come to condemn. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. And he did not come into the world to shame the world. He came into the world to bring forgiveness, to bring freedom, and to bring a future. And you find yourself in this moment with this woman standing there. And Jesus offers her that. He, he offers her forgiveness. There seems to be no doubt in the story about the woman's guilt in this situation. No one stands up to say, no, they're lying on her. There's no subnote in the story that says it wasn't as they told. There's no point in the story where they say she was innocent and they just brought her out. Everyone seems to unanimously agree that she is guilty of the thing that they accused her of. And how good is God that even though we are guilty of the things we are accused of, he says to her, then I don't condemn you either. He offers her forgiveness. And he offers her freedom. He says to her, go. You're not bound. You're not held here anymore. You don't have to stay in this place physically or emotionally. Go. And then he offers her a future because he says to her, and by the way, sin no more. By the way, go forward in a new direction for your life. By the way, there's a better future for you at hand. By the way, you're more than the way you've been living. By the way, there's a hope for you. By the way, you don't have to live the same life that you've been living. By the way, there is something better for your future ahead. And he offers her forgiveness and he offers her freedom and he offers her a future of living in a brand new way of life. Because Jesus' grace is not a grace of permissiveness that says you are forgiven to carry on in the thing you've been carrying on in. He has so much more for you than to just carry on in the thing you've been carrying on in. His grace is a grace of power that says when I offer you grace and when I offer you forgiveness and when I offer you freedom into a new life of the future of that I have for you, I offer it to you in a brand new way that's going to restore your soul, that's going to change the inward person and make them a new outward person. I'm going to change you and restore you in such a way that that old life of sin, that that old place of longing, that the old thing that you were trying to fulfill with someone else's bed or with someone else's substance or with someone else's screen or with something else altogether, that thing can no longer be filled anymore by external things and that thing 
can no longer be filled anymore by the things of this world. I'm telling you to go forward in a new way and to sin no more, but to turn your entire life. And when you walk in this direction, the inward longings of your soul are going to be fulfilled in him, are going to be found in him, are going to be made new by him, are going to be cleansed by his presence, are going to be cleansed by his grace, are going to be cleansed by his goodness, are going to be cleansed by his hope, are going to be cleansed by his love for you, are going to be cleansed by his voice over you, are going to be cleansed by the place that you find yourself, not in the voice of accusers, but under the name of the one who loves you, under the one who came for you, under the one who came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to offer everlasting life, that whoever believes in him should experience eternity with him, that whoever believes in him is no longer a bondage to death or to sin or to the grave, but found themselves no longer bound to sin, but ushered in to sonship and to daughtership, to be known in his presence, to say, God is my father. God is the one who loves me. God is the one who came for me. Jesus saw me. He saw me when everyone else accused me. And he saw me when everyone else condemned me. He saw me when everyone else wanted to throw stones at me. And he saw me when I was guilty. He saw me when I'd done exactly what they said I'd done. He saw me when I was just as broken as they said I was. He saw me when I was at my absolute worst and at my absolute bottom when there was nothing I could do. There was no word I could say to defend myself. There was no excuse I could offer of why I got here. I was everything that they said I was. And I was every bit as bad and every bit as broken and every bit as hurt and every bit as guilty. And in the midst of that, he looked down at me and he stooped low and he said, I don't condemn you. And if I don't condemn you, there's no one's voice who can stand against mine. I offer you forgiveness and I offer you freedom and I offer you a future. He is the God of your future, of your tomorrow, of your hope, of your restoration, of your better than you could have ever imagined. The future that he has for you is untangled from condemnation, is untangled with shame, is untangled from guilt, and is bound up in his love, is bound up in his forgiveness, is bound up in the freedom that only comes from him, is bound up in the future that he has planned for you. And if you're saying today is my day to say yes, to walk into that step, to stand in that place of forgiveness, and a freedom and a future with Jesus. Maybe you're guilty, no doubt you are. We're all guilty of something in our lives, but today is your day to stand before him and hear him say, where are your accusers? They're not here. And if they don't condemn you, I don't either. Today is your day for that. Hands are going up all across the room and all across the chat saying, I'm saying yes to Jesus today. I'm saying yes to Jesus today. I see hands going up, hands going up in this room. I see you, love. I see you all. And I want everyone to repeat after me. With hands lifted high, everyone who can is standing. Saying, Jesus, I come to you today. And I thank you for your forgiveness. I ask you to come into my life. I believe 
in your life, in your death, in your burial, and in your resurrection. And today, I let go of a life led by me, and I take hold of a life led by you for all my life. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Come on, church. Let's celebrate those who said yes to Jesus today. Let's celebrate the goodness of God in this place. Amen.